Well, good morning. I think we're set. I dropped my phone. Welcome. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you this morning. Um, we have, you know, there's times where you pray and you're like, Lord, we're having all these technical difficulties, and so far everything has been working great. So you pray, and the Lord shows up in mighty and powerful ways. We're excited about that. Maybe that's not happening online, but at least it's happening here, and that's great. All right. <clears throat> online people, I apologize. Um, all right. There's purposes for all these things. Fear not. Uh, my name is Matt, as I said. And I'm really glad to be able to be worshiping with you and worshiping with you at home. And uh, as you know, we have been uh, in a series for the last couple of weeks that's a preparatory series for us to step into a year-long journey of walking through every page of the Bible together. And so we're doing this big flyover of the scriptures. And today... We're we'll doing a flyover of about a thousand years of history. So all my history buffs, you're super excited. All those who like skipped all your history classes, it's going to be a great day for you especially. Um, but one of the big ideas of this entire series is that the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. One story that leads to, that's centered on the person of Jesus Christ, though at some times we don't see him as clearly and of course revealed in the Gospels most explicitly. But whether, whether we're looking at the, the purpose and intent of each author who's, who's intentionally trying to articulate the reality of the covenant people of God or of the poetry of God or of the prophetic works of God, or if, if we're looking at the broad scale, we're looking at one author, God himself who has orchestrated a broad one arc moving all the way towards Jesus. And that's what we're looking at this morning and uh, as I said, we're going to be spanning about a thousand years today through 12 books of the Bible, the 12 historical books of the Bible and that are going to capture God's chosen people, right, who we followed up to the edge of the promised land last week and how his covenant and his promises to them are, well, kind of either chosen or not chosen. The fundamental question that we were left with at the end of Deuteronomy was from Moses, hey, listen, are you going to choose to follow God or are you not? Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? Which direction are you going to go as you walk into this land that I've promised you? And so we're going to, will the promise, will the covenant with God be, be cherished and delighted in and followed and obeyed or, or will it be abandoned? Will it be rejected? Will it be violated? And so what we looked at last week was the formation, the preparation for a nation, right? We talked about the different elements that make up a nation. You have to have a people. Check. We got a bunch of people. You have to have some kind of a constitution that gathers you all together. And God gives the constitution, the law to Moses that says, these are the kinds of people we're going to be under God. So they got a constitution. They got a people. And they find themselves leading the most important thing, which is a land. And God has said, I'm going to take you to a land. And so we left last week with them on the edge of the Jordan River, looking at the land that God had promised them, but not yet. It's not, not quite there yet. Now, again, if you remember, we're going all the way back to the blessing, the, the, the promise to Abraham, right? God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I have this promise for you, this, this covenant that you're going to, you're going to, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bless you. And, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation. And Abraham passed the promise on to Isaac, and Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Joseph, and of course the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt with this promise that there is a great nation that is about to unfold, that is about to play itself out in this new land. The promise is a company that moves from Moses 
and is handed in Joshua chapter 1, our first book, to Joshua himself. Beginning of Joshua, Moses dies and a whole season of following one leader comes to an end. And we see in Joshua the conquest of the land of Canaan. He appropriates and takes on this, 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 this covenant from God and, and moves into the land and, and Joshua is faithful. And there's all kinds of things that happen. But the first thing and the most important thing that happens is they, they conquer Jericho. And in the conquering of Jericho, the most significant thing that God shows them is that in his covenant with them, they are not the ones who are defeating the armies. They're not the ones that are going to be do it. He, going to be doing it. he is the one who will do it. And so they defeat Jericho without them lifting a finger. And from there, God's promise is faithful to them. And they conquer the entire land and eventually distribute it out, divide it up amongst all 12 tribes. We come all the way to the end of the book of Joshua. And there's a bit of a settledness. Not everyone's been taken out. The Canaanites are still in the land. But Joshua reiterates the covenant. He says, listen, for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. Who will you choose to follow today? Will you follow the Lord? Because if you do, then all the blessings that we've talked about from, from Moses will come upon you. And if you do not, all the curses will come upon you. Who will you choose the covenant's reiterated. And the risk, the promise is to say, listen, there's two options. You're either going to follow the covenant of God that he's handed down from one to another, or you're going to choose idolatry. You're going to choose to follow other gods. You're going to, you, you can't do both, unfortunately. And so you have to choose where you're going to walk. And what we see is that Joshua comes to the end of his life and it rolls into the next book, which is the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges the promise and the covenant seem like they've never been given or heard of. The covenant of God seems to be put down and everyone starts doing what is right in their own eyes. The book of Judges lasts about 350 years or so and, and there's this cycle that happens in the book of Judges where, where the people of Israel are doing whatever they want to do. They're, they're gross idolatry. They're just, they're worshiping every, under every, every branch, under every tree. They're, they're basically mirroring what the people of the land were doing. And so they've chosen idolatry and then so God says, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And he sends the Midianites or the Moabites or the Canaanites to them and they conquer them and they oppress them. And the people say, we're so sorry, we didn't mean to do this. And so they fall on their knees, they repent and they cry out to God and what God does is he raises up a judge, a deliverer that delivers the people of Israel or particularly an area of Israel for a time. A local leader who for a temporary time brings relief and deliverance but then that, that judge goes off the scene, he dies and everything goes back and the cycle begins again. That's a cycle of judges that happens over and over and over. What's, what's tragic about, about, about the book of Judges is that is that it gets worse and worse and worse. Like the cycle doesn't just stick around. It goes down worse and worse. And so, you know, Ehud and, and, uh, and Deborah, they're okay. But by the time you get to, to Samson, you have a mess. You have someone who, it's like, it's like this never existed. He's accomplishing the purposes of God without engaging the covenant of God, without engaging the promises of God. And yet God's still working through him through them to accomplish his purposes for his people. God's covenant is still being held up, though the people are not holding up any elements of their covenant. So there's disunity. 
There's tribalism. There's no nation. Yeah, they're in a land now, but they're just tribal and all categorized in their own areas and no unity whatsoever. There's gross idolatry and gross immorality. And four times at the end of the book of Judges it says, and there was no king in Israel. Four separate verses right at the end of the book it says, and there was no king in Israel. And there was no king in Israel. And it's as though the author is foreshadowing saying we have a problem. Is that we have this disunity, this, this scattered nation that has not, and is not unified around one particular element. And so the people of God start asking for a king. But before we get there, in the midst of the book of Judges, this dark, depressing, frankly, you get to the end and like, it's like, it's like rated R kind of, kind of biblical story stuff. In the midst of all this, there's this bright light, this little thread of light, this, this remnant in the book of Ruth. Smack dab in the middle of this meth, you've got Boaz and you've got Ruth. Ruth who's a Moabitess, they are the remnant of God. They're the ones who are, they are mirroring, they actually pick up the covenant of God and begin to live according to all his purposes with generosity and faith and hope and trust. And the end of the book of Ruth lets us know, it gives us the hint that there is a king on their way. Ruth would be the great grandmother of David. And so there's all this anticipation, all this preparation. The covenant seems to be ignored until God raises up Samuel. And Samuel picks back up the covenant and he moves out as the final and last judge. And instead of it being like this tribal area, he judges all of Israel in righteousness and in justice. He's carrying the staff of God's covenant and of his promises and he's moving through the land. And the people are saying, we love you, Samuel. We want to follow what God has for us. There's a, there's a turn of the nation they get to the end of Samuel's life and he's starting to get old and they look at his sons and they say, your sons are trouble. Appoint for us a king. Give us a king like the other nations. Give us a king like the other nations. We, we don't want to be God's people. We want to be, we just want to be like the other nations and have someone go out and battle for us. Just give us someone we can look at that will tell us it's going to be okay. Because we're not sure about this Yahweh. It, can you just give us somebody we can trust in? So God gives them the desires of their heart. He gives them, as we begin in 1 Samuel, he gives them Saul. And Saul is exactly what they wanted. He's tall, good looking. He looks like a king. And frankly, he starts off okay. He listens to the Lord. He listens to Samuel in particular. But then pretty rapidly, his pride and his self-absorption takes him down the road of disobedience. Next thing you know, he's violating all the covenants of God. And he puts down the covenant of God and starts going after his own way. Not initially in, in gross idolatry. He's just going to do it in his way. He's going to sacrifice when it's not his position to sacrifice. Rapidly, Saul goes downhill. And Samuel comes to him in 1 Samuel chapter 15, having heard from the Lord. And he says, you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord. And he has rejected you as king. Well, as Saul is in decline, David emerges. A king after God's own heart. And of course, much of the Bible is written about, about David. Many of these Psalms are written by David. And, and David is one from the youth, from his youth, apparently, who, who picked up the covenant of the Lord and trusted in him, whether he was on the, out in the fields protecting his sheep or in front of 
uh, Goliath or running from Saul who's trying to murder him. He trusts in the Lord over and over and over again. And God said, he's a king after my own heart. Not because he's perfect, just to be clear, because that's going to be proven woefully false. And God makes a covenant with David. He's saying, the same thing I said to Abraham is now getting clearer and clearer and clearer. And there's going to be a people and there's going to be a king and, and he's going to come from your line. Listen to the covenant God makes with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has said to God, I want to build you a house. I, I built myself a house, but I want to build you a house, a temple for you to reside here in Jerusalem. And God comes back to David and says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And listen to the promise. I will make for you a great name. Like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will, the language of promise, appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall, hmm, who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. And I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He makes a promise to, to David that says, listen, out of your body is going to come a sequence of king and one of them is going to be king of kings. He will rule forever. So David, following his own descent into mistakes, sins, grievous sins, always turns back to the Lord. And he does some pretty awful stuff. But his heart is disposed towards the covenant of God. And so God always receives him because his heart is disposed towards God, both in his successes and in his failures. And God delights in him. And he passes the covenant on to his son Solomon. And Solomon, Solomon starts off amazing. But listen to... Listen to where Israel is under Solomon. Listen if this sounds like the covenant to Abraham. 1 Kings chapter 4, it says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. That's exactly what God says in Genesis 22 to Abraham. And they ate and drank and were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people to the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the other men and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. I always found it fascinating that they caught the last five. And people of all nations 
came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Do, do you hear it? Like, the, we're there. Like, promise fulfilled. There, you got a great nation. You've got a, you've got a people that are living in peace who have conquered all of their enemies. People are bringing tribute. They're coming from afar to experience the blessing of the Lord upon this people. The very purpose that God had raised up Israel to be this bright light to the nations. The reason the covenant had been made with them was not because they were great, but because they were to be a great display of the glory of God to the people. And guess what? It's happening. People are coming from afar to see what is this people and who is this God. The very reason they had been brought into being. The promise is fulfilled. It's happened. It's happening. Celebration. Prosperity and peace and wisdom. Fame of the nations. There's blessing. And, 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 and Solomon takes on not just the kingly role, but he also takes steps into a, a priestly function. And he, and he builds this temple to the Lord. And David had done a bunch of prep for it. And Solomon finishes it. And, and with his whole heart just like bursting at the seams, he picks up the covenant and says, Lord, this house that I've built for you, whenever we... We turn away from you and, and we sin against you and, and we turn our eyes towards this temple. Will you hear and forgive us? And when, and when our enemies come and wage war against us and we pray towards this temple, will you hear our cry and will you fight our battles for us? He's repraying the covenant that God's made with them. He's repraying the promise that God has promised them. He's holding fast to it. And it says that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Whew. Just like the glory of the Lord had come down on Sinai, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle, so the glory of the Lord appears in the midst of Jerusalem, the capital city of a great nation. The Lord responds to Solomon's prayer to his declaration, his reaffirmation of the covenant and his taking on of the promise of the Lord. And he says, and the Lord said to him, said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all times. Covenant language. God is reaffirming his covenant. The next verse, if you will walk before me as David walked, I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. But verse 6, but if you and your sons turn away from following me and serve other gods, I will cut off Israel. It's as though God is foreshadowing for Solomon exactly what's about to happen. A downward spiral begins again. And Solomon who, and when you read 1 Kings chapter 8, I mean like it, it brings tears to my eyes almost every time I read it. It's so powerful. And that same man takes the covenant of God and puts it down and picks up idolatry says in 1 Kings 11 that King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. They were from the nations about which the Lord had 
told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. They will surely turn your hearts away after their gods. Nonetheless, Solomon held fast to them in love, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned their heart, his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his, his God as the heart of his father David had been. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then he went and built the high place of Shemesh and Moloch, the detestable gods of the peoples. So quickly, we're at this apex moment. All is being fulfilled, it appears, and not, a, not even a whole lifetime goes by, and we're back to judges. There's idolatry and building new temples for new gods, and, and things go downhill really fast. From that moment on, the, the kingdom divides. The son of, the, uh, the son of Solomon and, and this other man, Jeroboam, go to civil war, and the ten tribes break from the two tribes, and you have the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah, and they, and they war with each other, and, and you have this new legacy in the, up the ten tribes of Israel, these, all these new kings. There's nine dynasties that appear. People are murdering each other. It's a bloodbath. There's 19 kings, and they are all evil. All of them hold fast to idolatry in every possible way, have no interest in the covenant of God, have left it aside as though it never existed. Israel, on the other hand, ends up with 20 kings. Oh, by the way, the, the, the northern tribes end up being conquered by Assyria in 722 and driven away, and they get scattered amongst the nations. Transplanted away, seemingly lost, exiled. Judah survives that exile. They don't get taken away. Hezekiah fights hard against. The Lord fights for Hezekiah. But not long after that, after 20 kings, all of which, by the way, were from the line of David, so we have one dynasty in Judah, all the way through, one dynasty, son after son after son. Four of them are good. Four of them do okay. And 12 of them go from poor to just evil, sacrificing their children kind of evil. So we watched the kingdom of Judah looking at Israel being swept away. And next thing you know, they find themselves being swept away also. First Chronicles, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles 36, all the way at the end of the narrative, says the king, which is referencing all the kings ultimately, but the king at that time stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. This had happened over and over and over again. And it wasn't just him, but, but all the officers of the priests and, and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent, sent listen, he sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. One of the most tragic moments in all of the Old Testament 
is when the glory of the Lord, which had come upon the temple, where people knew that they could come to the temple, which had been desecrated. And people, there were, for, for a season, there, there were horses and stalls in the temple. I mean, there's terrible stuff is going on. But, but at all times, there was a sense the presence of the Lord is here. And it says, the glory of the Lord, in Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of the Lord left the temple. Ichabod, the, the glory of the Lord, the very thing that, that made the people of Israel, God's people, departed for them. The presence of the Lord has been removed. And then the people of God get removed. And they get exiled to Babylon. You guys remember Nebuchadnezzar, if you grew up knowing the Bible, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Daniel, and all those folks. And they're deported to Babylon. The temple is burned with fire. Jerusalem is torn down. The walls are shredded. And it seems like the end of the story. I mean, it really does. It looks like, never mind the promise. This seems to have been forgotten. No one's touched this in so long. A couple of the kings picked it back up, but then it got put back down. And, and now, now they're in Babylon. It seems like the story is over, but it's not. God makes a promise. He says, 70 years you'll be here and then you will return. I'm promising you you'll be back. And sure enough, King Cyrus, the Persian, takes over for, for Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he makes a decree and allows a remnant to return to Israel. 50,000 come back originally with Ezra and uh, with, uh, with uh, Zerubbabel. And, and they, they start rebuilding the worship of the Lord through the temple. They try, they try to put that back. It takes about 20 years to get the temple built back up. And, but the glory of the Lord does not return to the temple. They rebuild it and the sacrificial system begins once again. And, and years later, in four, by 445 um, B.C., Nehemiah leaves and he's sorrowful over the, the state of Jerusalem and he comes down. We're starting to get all the way to the end of the story of Israel and, and Nehemiah comes down, he rebuilds the walls and, and he's trying to, to get some of the, the, the problems and challenges that have been emerging in the people to end, but kind of, their hearts are not fully with the Lord. These, these men, Ezra and Nehemiah, have picked back up the covenant of God and they're saying, see what we're doing, will, will you meet us, will you rescue your people once again? And and God meets them, as imperfect as they are, he meets them over and over again. But one of the things that, that happens following the, uh, following the deportation to, to, um, to Babylon is that Israel will never struggle with idolatry again. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene and even in the intervening years, you'll never hear of Israel going back to idolatry. They go to other things. They actually go to self-righteousness and to being separate from because of the law. They go to all kinds of other things, but they never go back to idolatry. God purges them of idolatry through the judgment of Babylon. And in Esther, the final book of the 12 books, we see this scattered people. This is what they call the diaspora. Scattered people of Israel, and they are all over the known globe. And God provides protection and rescue for them, many of which didn't even realize they were going to need protection and rescue. And one of the things that is amazing about God's covenant, his promise, is that um, sometimes it, it requires judgment and it, and it requires pretty catastrophic means like exile but he's doing something. He's always weaving something in. And one of the things that God was weaving in in the scattering of his people, and I think this is one of the most fascinating things about the reality of the Old Testament, is that everywhere where the Jews went, they built synagogues. Everywhere. 
And we find ourselves in the book of Acts after Jesus has come, risen from the dead and ascended. He sends the disciples out and, and particularly Paul and Barnabas. And they go throughout the entire known world, the Greek world, the Roman world. And where do they go? They go to the scattered people of Israel throughout the entire world. Every time they walk into a town, they go to the synagogue. The people of God who have not known a Messiah, but know the Torah, know the law, and are seeking to figure out is there a Messiah that's coming. God had pre-dropped in his promises throughout the entire world through the judgment of the scattering of his people. And the gospel would move from synagogue to city, from synagogue to city, and by the end of Paul's life, it would cover the known world to Rome. God's always working his promises out. So how do we, how do we engage these, how do we engage these books? Well, I think 1 Corinthians gives us the clearest way of looking at them. 1 Corinthians, Paul says in verse 10, in chapter 10, now these things happen, speaking of the Old Testament, now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands pride take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. I, I look at the history of Israel. It's common. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now listen, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul's saying, all the things that have been told throughout the entirety of the, of the Old Testament are an invitation to hold fast to the covenant of God, that he is faithful, that his promises are good, that his commitment is good, and to flee from idolatry, whatever idolatry may look like in your world, in your context, and that's the same invitation he has for us to do. So as we read the Old Testament, it says it's for our instruction. We're supposed to learn from them. Not not to imitate them. I mean, some of the things are obvious, you're not supposed to imitate them, but not even really in tangibly trying to, looking for life-enriching principles, not life-giving examples. Let's not be strong like Samson, not be brave like David, not be wise like Solomon, no. These are stories that are about, not about the goodness or the righteousness or the faithfulness or the strength of any man. They're about a God who is good and faithful and righteous and strong. And, he's, and he is that way towards undeserving and with undeserving men and women. Second thing is, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. One of the invitations of looking at these books of the Bible is humility. It's easy for us to look at people and say, man, that's, man, they really did not get it. What is wrong with them? I, at least I'm not. Temptation is common. And idolatry is common for us. No one in here is sacrificing children, I don't think. But one of the things that we notice throughout the whole entire Old Testament is that regardless of what the idolatry is, whether it's achievement or 
fame or riches, power, sex, lust. It pulls us away from the covenant of God. And those stories are to help us look and say, anyone, anyone. So flee. Flee idolatry. And you flee idolatry by clinging to the covenant. The, the old promise and the present reality. And ultimately, our invitation is to look to Jesus because Jesus is the, he's the true and better Joshua, right? He's, he's the true and better judge. He's the true and better, he's the true and better Samson. I, I think one of the things I think about Samson is like Samson lost his power because of his pride. He was a fool. And Jesus had lost his power willingly submitting it to the Father. Just as Samson outstretched his arm to push down the pillars and kill all his enemies, Jesus outstretched his arm but for the sake of his enemies and he had death crushed upon him. So yeah, Jesus is the true and better Samson. He's the true and better Ruth. He didn't just leave his people and his land but he left and relinquished the glory of heaven to come down to make himself nothing, to take on the nature of a servant. He's the true and better Samuel who bestows kingdoms on peasants and anoints lowly shepherd boys with kingly wreaths, kingly wealth and, and power. He's the true and better David, the final ultimate heir of the kingdom of God who reigns with justice and compassion and, and might forever and forever. He's the true and better Solomon who built a lasting temple, not, not out of gold and precious stone, but out of his own body that that we would be able to worship forever and ever in him. He's the true and better Elijah who hands down not just a double portion of his spirit to one successor, but he bestows the fullness of his Holy Spirit on everyone who will trust in him. He's a true and better Elisha who opens the eyes of his servants to see the riches of the glory of God and the inheritance of the saints. He's the true and better Ezra who reestablishes the law not by reading it to the people, but by perfecting it and fulfilling it in himself. He's the true and better Nehemiah who weeps over the destruction of Israel and who is the architect and builder of a city whose foundations will last forever. So I don't know what the, uh, what the 12 books of the Old Testament look like in your world exactly. But one of the things that they point us to is that no one can live out the promises of God and no one can live up to the covenant of God. All, even the best of them, are hopelessly flawed. And that's good news. Because if there's anything that all of, these, all of these chapters, all of these stories, all of these characters point us to, is that no one, no one can live up to it. Not you and not me, that we need a true and better king. We need a true and better prophet and we need a true and better priest. And that's good news because we have one. One who has fulfilled the covenant. I don't know how flawed the 12 books of your family story are, with the, how broken the chapters of your life have been, but I know this, that you have a king, you have a savior, you have one who has 
lived out and lived up to the covenant promises of God and has purchased them for you. And Jesus says, and those people that he purchased by his blood, no one can take them out of his hand. So these books are in many ways a cautionary tale, an invitation to look in, to, to see ourselves in them oftentimes and to, and to reach out. <clears throat> see, even when the covenant falls, he picks it back up. You have a faithful king who loves you and has made a way for you. And so this morning as we come to the table, one of the things that we're doing is we're remembering the one who fulfilled the covenant, who lived it out perfectly for you. And we're remembering so by taking it into our body and waiting for him to return and make all things new. And all of us, all of us need him to do that in us today. So let's pray. Father.